good to see you all again after a sermon like talking about assembling together. Generally after a lesson like that, uh, usually the, the attendance doesn't just dramatically drop after that. So it is good to see everyone. Um, uh, it's, it's just a good thing to have a, a good, strong core group of people that meets together regardless of the circumstances, uh, it's a blessing to be able to have that. And it's definitely a blessing we don't want to take for granted because it's, it's encouraging to see people on a regular basis for the same reason, not just any reason, but for having the mind of Christ and trying to please him and, and glorify him. So it's just good to see you all again tonight. Like I said, if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, let's read what Peter has to say. As he has been speaking to Christians about suffering, suffering for God and and really how they're supposed to react to it how they're supposed to be in the midst of it this is what he says towards the end of the epistle in verse 6 he says therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you now some translations say instead of anxiety burdens but essentially either one works very well God wants us to cast our burdens on Him. Sometimes I think when, when Christians think about that, th they tend to almost be kind of off-put. Well, I can't really share my emotions with God. Well, God says He wants you to. We need to learn how to pray to God honestly and sincerely, even in moments of, of great confusion, even in moments of great depression. Even in the moments where we are just in the full thrall of the most negative emotions, we need to learn how to come before God in this avenue of prayer in a humble and a glorifying way, especially since we live in a world of great suffering. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. If you have lived for, for you know, past, maybe even into your teenage years, you understand automatically that this world has a lot of things that it can throw at you. And a lot of things to throw at you, even for nothing other than just trying to do what's right. And so it will come if we haven't experienced it already. And if we don't prepare ourselves now, we won't be ready when the bad times come. I know that this is hard to think about, suffering. And it really, we like to put it on the back burner because we just want to stay positive and we want to think about the good things. But we need to be prepared. We need to start preparing today because guess what? The devil does not care when he strikes. In fact, well, he doesn't care about if you're prepared or not, rather. He, in fact, strikes when we aren't thinking about it, it seems to be. So that way we are completely caught off guard and we don't know how to proceed. We don't know how to move forward, at least with God. So we want to be able to come to God with our burdens, with our anxieties, and cast them upon him. Now, this does not mean that we just approach him and vent irreverently. So we need to find a balance. Being completely open with him like we see in the Psalms, but not going too far in our language for or against him, again, as we see in the Psalms. And so what I want to look at tonight is just a kind of a case study. You want to turn back to the book of Job. There are three friends of Job that I want to focus on tonight because there is a lot of things that they say. And I, I, I'll tell you what, except for one thing, which we're going to note, out of the three friends that Job has, not including Elihu, we're not going to look at him because there's, uh, there, there, there's sometimes debate about whether or not he should be included with uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and, and Zophar, who say just silly things. He seems to say better things towards the end. But those three friends... Other than one statement throughout Job, they say 
just really almost utter nonsense. And they just add on to Job's suffering. Not only that, but as we're going to see at the very end of the story, God says they have spoken in a very, in a very hostile way towards, towards him. Now, I want to focus on those, those three individuals tonight to, to just make this case. Because unfortunately, Christians, more and more, we don't know what this balance looks like. How to go to God and put our, our, our burdens on him and our anxieties on him without saying things like these three friends. So we're going to start this study. We're not going to look at the first couple of chapters because I think that's the most familiar part of Job. We know what happens. This is a terrible and terrifying story. Job loses everything. He loses his family uh, other than his wife. He loses his riches. He loses his comfort. He loses his health. He loses everything that you could possibly think someone could, could use as a form of refuge in, in the darkest of times. He loses it all. But at the end of uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, it, it says, or in, in each case, it says that Job did not curse God and die, but rather he says things like, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a beautiful example, and I think that there are some things to take from this. But really what I want to do tonight is look at things that we should not say with, like, uh, the three friends in moments of tragedy. And I don't, and don't think I'm saying that this just has to do with when death strikes. What should we not do and say just in times of crisis? So let's look at a few things, just a few things that these three individuals say all throughout the book of Job. In Job chapter 4, beginning... There's just so much that you could look at. But from the very beginning, after Job kind of laments in chapter 3, Eliphaz picks up and he responds to what Job has said. He responds to what, what Job has said whilst in the midst of suffering. And it's, not, it's just not helpful. Now, this is what unrestrained venting leads to. From the very beginning, what does Eliphaz do? It seems that he corrupts what is biblical truth? Look in Job chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beginning in verse 7 of Job chapter 4, he says, Remember now whoever perished being innocent. So what is he saying? If you're innocent, can you think of any innocent righteous person who has ever suffered or has ever died for, for being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what, have I, what I have seen, those who plow iniquity, all those who sow trouble, harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Now, you're going to see this come in, in full fruition at the end of the book. But what you see from the beginning is he's almost indicating, well, if this tragedy came, it's probably because you did something. <laughs> or even, even his kids, as you'll see in a moment. But he makes just an extreme and really inappropriate statement. What is Eliphaz saying here? What he's basically saying is bad guys always lose and good guys always win. Now, when you take the whole story of the Bible and look at it from a very broad point, what is the main point? God is going to win and the bad guys are going to lose. That's true. But what he does is he ends up saying not that, but in every single case, bad guys are always going to lose. And, and find destruction. When the good guys, they're not going to suffer. They're not going to be destroyed. But you, just from the outset, can you not think of a few instances just in your own mind, whether it be from social media, your personal experiences, or just reading stories, watching movies, things like that, you see time and time again moments where this is just not the case. The problem with this is this is the rule, but the Bible never says that there's no exception. Over in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 21, 
Proverbs chapter 13, in verse 21. It says, Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. Now this absolutely is true. This is divine truth. But then you go over to Ecclesiastes, and what do you see? Solomon just keeps going through all of the different things. He says, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Everything is vain. Because even the one who does good, he has to come into contact with even the worst kinds of suffering. And you know what? Guess what? He still ends up meeting death and meeting destruction, just like everybody else. And so while Proverbs, you do see divine truth, this is the rule. That doesn't mean you're never going to see the, uh, the uh, uh, exception. And so just from the very beginning, what we find are people, they are using godly, uh, God, God's truth, divine truth, and they're bending it in an inappropriate way. And I think sometimes we do this, when, especially when we begin to suffer ourselves. We get just so caught up in whatever the trial is, whatever the persecution or affliction is, and what happens is we're just not thinking fully, and then we go a little bit too far in what we say, and we make promises that we we're just not going to be able to keep. We write checks that we're not going to be able to cash. All because we're just in the thralls of, of suffering and, and affliction. And when we do this, like Eliphaz, this sets us up for failure in the long run. Um, and we're going to see this even more as we continue. But from the very outset, what you find is that immediately they begin saying things, but even if there's some truth involved, they're making poor applications. We see this even further as you go deeper into chapter 5. <clears throat> chapter 5, in verse 13, not only do they begin corrupting the truth, but they begin misapplying biblical truth, as we were kind of indicating just a moment ago. In chapter 5 and verse 13, Look at what he says. He says, He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Now, again, this seems to be very truthful, and, and, and it is. But what he does is the application that he's trying to make is say, while this is true, this means that you were that wise one. You were that one that God had to capture in, in shrewdness. You are the one that had to be thwarted by God's providence, by God's power. And he's just, he's just saying things that he just simply cannot know. And, and, and really all throughout what we're going to find is that it all seems to be based in ignorance. Maybe one of the best things we can take from, from Job is it may be better to say nothing than just speak in blind, blind ignorance. This is what unrestrained venting leads to. Because he, 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 goes, he makes this extreme statement this, this time, or rather... It's not an extreme statement this time, but he uses biblical truth to make an unbiblical application. And let me just ask, isn't this what the devil did with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? There are three instances where he tries to tempt Jesus. And what does he do? He even brings up scripture. He says, oh, but don't you know what the scripture says? That you're not going to be harmed. Throw yourself off. Aren't the angels going to carry you up? Aren't, the, aren't they going to make sure that you don't re receive any injury? And the devil... I mean, he doesn't misquote scripture, but what does he do? He misapplies it. He is being very tactful, very strategic in his usage of God's truth to come to a conclusion that God does not want us to come to. Now, Jesus knows better, being the son of God and being much wiser than, than the devil. But, but even from the beginning, even in Genesis chapter 3, the devil has been using God's word against his creation and God's word against 
hit him or trying to. And so we need to be mindful of this kind of strategy from the devil. Don't we hear time and time again people say things like, well, when we talk about alcohol, well, Jesus drank wine. There's even a stupid song about that. Well, I heard Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine. Oh, I bet you would, wouldn't you? The Jesus that you're talking about, not, not the biblical Jesus. And, and you even see people talk about when Paul tells Timothy, well, you need to drink a little wine for the stomach's sake. Well, yes, Paul does say that to Timothy. But we're completely ignoring the clear condemnation that the Bible puts on drinking alcohol, especially for the Christian. Now, those who are not Christians, well, I mean, they can do whatever they want, but it's still sin. Regardless, people will try to, they try to use Scripture time and time again to act like, oh, well, this is actually fine. People say, well, the Bible says, judge not. But it also says, Judge with righteous judgment. I believe that's even in the same chapter as you look in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, yes, the Bible says things. But when, when we use the Bible as our source, we need to make sure that it is balanced with the rest of Scripture. I love what Jesus says in that second temptation in Matthew chapter 4. When the devil comes up with Scripture, what does he say? But it also says, okay? Yes, that is true, but it also says... And we need to be able to do that. We need to, have that, we need to be able to have that comprehensive uh, knowledge of Scripture. So that way, like Jesus, we can not fall to the temptation that the devil will try to use on us. And that his servants will try to use on us. Now, so, so thinking about this, as he's making this, this, this statement. Again, it's not as extreme as the first one where he says, well, you probably deserve this catastrophe. But it's not as extreme as that. But he's still coming to the wrong conclusion with biblical truth. With that being the case, does that mean that we just throw truth out altogether? When Jesus was presented with the word of God, well, I guess we just, no, that's not what he did. In fact, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19, we won't go there. But in 1 Corinthians, the first few chapters, Paul is talking about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, the folly of the world and the folly of God. And he's comparing, or rather contrasting those. What's interesting is he uses this same statement by Eliphaz. And, but, but, but the difference here is Paul is making the, the accurate application. He's coming to the right conclusion. He's not making some silly conclusion uh, like, like Eliphaz is here. Rather, he quotes him because this is true of God. And, and we, we want to make sure that, that we as well come to the right biblical, scriptural applications. We need to make sure that we are coming to God's conclusion, not, not our own with scripture. But a lot of people tend to use God's word to just really not even come to their own conclusion, but just use it to make their case and just completely ignorant of the rest of, of his will. And so constantly, there are several other examples that we could look at where they misapply divine truth. We don't have enough time to do that, but just understand that is one of the main things that they do. And this is what happens when we are in the midst of suffering and we just say, well, I'm just going to let it all out with, with, no, with no restraint. I'm going to let it all out with no thought whatsoever. We don't want to go that far. Because this is what we end up doing, like Eliphaz. Well, not only that, but it also leads to ignorant, as we were talking about, unbiblical speculation. Now we come to some things that Bildad has to say. Over in chapter 8, Job chapter 8 and verse 3. Job chapter 8, verse 3 first. 
He says, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Now, we know the answer of that, don't we, Christian? Does God pervert justice? No, of course not. He is justice. He's the very standard of justice. And he does not, as he says at the end of verse 3, pervert what is right. Again, he's, that, he's the very source of what is right. And so we start with truth just like we kind of have with, with uh, these first few um, arguments from, from, from Eliphaz. But Bildad starts with truth, but then he moves quickly away from what we can know to just plain old speculation as we were talking about. In verse 4 he continues on and says, If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. And if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. What is he saying there? Well, first of all, he's kind of uh, going along with this, this uh, same slight accusation at the beginning. He's going a little bit further. He's, he's kind of saying, well, this, you probably had something to do with this. But can, can you imagine... Can you imagine being Job, losing all of your kids, and someone coming up to you and saying, they, they, I don't know any better, but they probably brought it on themselves. <laughs> Again, just because we don't know, but because this terrible thing has happened to such a righteous man like Job, that must mean that, well, they probably were into some crazy, wicked stuff. And so they definitely brought this on themselves. I mean, that is what he's trying to insinuate, that it's your kid's fault that, that all of this happened to you. Now, I will say, we are told that Job's children weren't what they should be. But let me just also say, we're also told that that was not the cause of this. Do you remember what the cause was? Go back to the first couple chapters, and you see the setting. As we, as, before you even come to Job on earth, you have this very interesting conversation between the adversary and God. And God even presents Job as this servant. What a beautiful thought that God would look at one of his servants and say, and point them out and say, this, this is what I'm talking about right there. Have you considered him? He's blameless and he is righteous. And so the cause was not his children, though yes, we are given some, some, some uh, information that they were not what, like Job, that they were not what they should have been, but that wasn't the reason all this happened. It was the devil. And I really think that we need to come to grips with that because sometimes we just forget. We try to make all of these, all of these very scholarly and, and big thoughts and considerations into why is this happening to me? How could this happen to such righteous individuals? And we forget very quickly who is constantly trying to accuse us. Who is constantly trying to bring us down with him. It's, it's not God. It's the devil. We forget that so quickly. You know, not just Bildad. Zophar makes unjust and unbiased accusations about Job as well. You go to chapter 11 in verse 1. Job chapter 11 in verse 1. It says, Zophar the Namathites answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boasts silence men? And shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. And then you skip down to verse 14, and he says, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. 
then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. You know what's interesting about that? Zophar is trying to say, Job, you are not innocent like you claim to be. Job, you are not righteous and blameless like you claim to be. Zophar has come to the exact opposite conclusion than God, than the Almighty. Back in chapter 1 and verse 8, what does God say about him? Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And you go to chapter 2 and verse 3, and he says essentially the same thing, just emphasized. And you get to the end of the book, and God even makes it even more clear. He says, you you guys have said some things that are just plain wrong. And you've gone too far. And why? Because they couldn't make sense of it themselves. Well, we're just going to assign random blame, or we're just going to give random reasons to why these bad circumstances have come to be. You know, there are other people that did that. Remember what happens in John chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3? That some people bring a blind man to Jesus and say, the, who, who has sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? <laughs> and what does Jesus say? What? Neither. And one of the things that I think we can take from that kind of a passage in John chapter 9 is sometimes bad things happen. And that's, that's just the truth of the matter. Bad things happen sometimes. And it's not because God is wicked. It's not because, it's not because necessarily that we have brought it on ourselves or necessarily that our, the previous generation has brought it on us. But it is because we live in a sin-corrupted world. So if there is some kind of physical or mental defect in someone, it doesn't have to mean that it's because of sin. It is just simply because sin brought forward deformity. It brought forward defect. It brought forward imperfections. And we have to live with that. We have to figure out how to live in this kind of a world. And this is the reason that God, as we looked at in the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5, says, you need to cast your anxieties and your burdens on me. Because let me tell you, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. So when it comes to times of suffering, I think we do the same thing as, as the three friends of, of, of Job here. We often go too far in saying that something or someone is to blame when we just, we simply have no idea. In Psalm 73, in verses 15 through 17, Asaph talks about really doubt that he had been experiencing. And he says things like, Really, the same thing that, that Eliphaz was saying. Why is it that those that are evil and that are against God are fat and sleek, and I am trying to do what's right, and all I'm getting is suffering? All I'm getting is, is the exact opposite of what I thought I should get. Let me tell you something. It's not necessarily, it's not immediately wrong when we sometimes think that, because we will. We will also, like Asaph, come, come to a point where we are trying to figure out why is it that I'm going through this when I'm trying to do what God tells me to do? This doesn't make sense. That alone isn't sinful. What is sinful is doing what Eliphaz does and goes too far. And you even see that in Psalm 73 because what does Asaph say? If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed the, this generation of your people. If I had spoken on this and I had actually verbalized and went too far, I would have betrayed the generation of my people and I would have betrayed God. So, so is it ever a good idea to speak with authority and confidence when we are simply in ignorance? I don't think so. Sometimes people say, this isn't fair. It may not be. But then maybe they go too far and say, 
How could God do this to me? How could a just God do this to me? And we forget James chapter 1 and verse 13. Who, who is the one that tempts? It's not God. God does not tempt anyone to do evil. God is not the one who, who does evil. Uh, you, go, you can think of several other examples. But I remember uh, seeing something on Facebook as I was scrolling through some afternoon. And it just I, I kind of thought about this as, we were, as I was thinking about this study in Job. There was, there was this individual during a, several worship services that he, he had to get up and leave the auditorium, go in the back, go to the bathroom, every service really. And there was a woman who finally just got fed up, and she just started complaining incessantly to the preacher about this. And, and what she didn't realize as they got into this conversation was he had a disease that forced him to have to go to the bathroom on a regular basis. And she was being so confident and she was speaking authoritatively. No one should be doing this that often. This is a serious thing that we're doing. We are worshiping God. We are in the assembly. How could someone think so little? And what has she done? She has no idea what's going on in this man's life. And she realizes, I spoke too soon. And it's not even about speaking things. It's okay to ask questions. But when we speak so confidently, how wise do you think she felt when the preacher said, he has a serious disease. She probably felt that, that tall, didn't she? How much more foolish is it when we speak confidently where we know only God knows? Very foolish. Well, finally, unrestrained venting leads to ultimately false doctrine. Go to Job chapter 25. This is, I think, a very interesting passage. And hopefully you'll see why John, uh, Job, I think I said John, Job chapter 25 in verses 1 through 5. Or verses 1 through 6, rather. This is getting towards the end of some of these arguments. And they just keep getting more serious and more serious and more serious. But look at what Bildad says. In verse 2, he says, Dominion and all belong to him. Who establishes peace in his heights? Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? Okay, all good things. Verse 4, How then can a man be just with God? Oh, or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon is no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. You know what he's saying? He's saying something that is actually very popular in the religious world today. You know, a lot of times people talk about total depravity. No one is right. There is none, none that can be considered righteous before God or just before God. And they forget a lot of examples like Job, for instance, but, but they, they, they talk about that notion of total depravity and no one can be righteous. Incidentally, that doctrine did not start with John Calvin. People may think it did. It started all the way back in Job's time. And it was just as false then. Because here he is, he, what is he saying? He's saying no one can be just before God, all because I can't figure out what's going on. So they just say something that is 100% unbiblical. Why? Because they, what else am I supposed to do? And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if Bildad, when he said this to Job, trying to shut Job up and trying to show him who is really wise, I wonder if he realized that if this was true about Job, it's also true of him. If Job is that unrighteous, so are you. <laughs> and so he goes too far. 
All because he can't answer a question. All because he doesn't know how to make sense of these things. And let me just tell you, this is what the devil counts on. That when we are exasperated, that when we are confused, when we are tired and just can't take any more from our afflictions, that we'll ultimately just end up leaning on something that is completely disconnected from God. Instead of leaning on his word for that comfort and as a refuge, we lean on something else, sometimes just our own understanding. And we come to a complete opposite conclusion than God has come to. There are many Christians who have become atheists because of some enlightenment that they had when considering the problem of suffering on their own. <laughs> and when they've considered their own suffering, the devil won there. The prosperity gospel teachers are successful because people just can't accept that suffering could be a major part of a Christian's life. Oh, it's just that I haven't given enough. Okay, that, that, this must be it. Guess what? No matter how much you give, if you're a Christian, truly, you're, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer specifically because you're a Christian. So we must be careful that we don't get enlightened by the devil's temptations and leave sound doctrine altogether. We want to lean fully on his truth. Now, all of this being said, why is it that this matters? What is the ultimate price of all of this, of, of this unrestrained venting and, and doing all of these things? It's not just a minor thing. Why? Because ultimately we are slanderously speaking about God or slanderously speaking to him. Go to the very end of the story, Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, look at what God says. After he speaks with Job and Job has to realize that, that he as well does not know everything. He didn't go as far as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but he, he, he kind of forgot that uh, he, he kind of forgot that he can't know everything as well. But what does God say about Job in verse 7? It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Why? Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 9, so Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. Not only does he say, you spoke things about me that were wrong. But he even uses Job, the one that they were so, so hostile against, against, to actually help put them in a right place with God. <laughs> because he accepts Job, it says in verse 9. Now, why is this important? We need to understand that every time they spoke out of turn, just to try and make sense out of these things, they spoke erroneously about God. And that is never, that is never a small or tedious thing. That is a major problem because that was slanderous towards him. They came to false doctrine. Even, even before we got to that point, they were misapplying divine truths. They were saying things ultimately about God. Maybe they didn't mean to, but they were implying things about God very clearly by the things that they were saying. Why does this matter? Every time they spoke slanderously about Job, they were speaking that way towards someone who was ultimately living the way God desired all to live. 
So not only were they speaking slanderously about God, but then they were even corrupting even more because here's this person who really was innocent and blameless in the sight of God, and they're saying, this man is not. What is everyone else going to see? If anyone else heard that, what are they going to think? That's going to disturb the faith of some. Why does this matter? Because every time they arrogantly misapplied biblical facts, they were ultimately distorting divine truth. Now let me just say, there are going to be moments where each of us suffer. There are going to be moments where each of us suffer unjustly, even though we actually are blameless in the matter. And specifically because we are God's servants. We need to make sure that when we start coming to him, praying to him, that when we are still an example to all who are looking at us how to deal with these kinds of tragedies, this kind of terrible suffering, we need to be an example of what, of what it looks like to be a Job, to be the innocent sufferer. Ultimately, what it looks like to be an innocent sufferer like Jesus. And we don't want to say things like the three friends. We don't want to be the example of Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz because they were hurting God by what they were saying and hurting ultimately the good news that he brings. So with all that being said tonight, I don't know, I don't know what you may be going through. You may have been suffering greatly recently. And if that's the case, that is a sorry thing. But I hope you know that if you are blameless like Job, you don't have to, to dwindle in despair. Because what God could be doing is using you as that example. I think that there's so much encouragement in that. We need to be living like Job so that way God could say, look at him. Look at her. Even though you have thrown all these things at her or him, they are still dedicated to me. You can be that. Maybe you're a Christian and you have failed to a degree. That may be the case. Guess what? We all have struggled to that degree. But we can make ourselves right with God once more. We can take a step back. Like in the first six verses of chapter 42, what we need to do is just look again at the Almighty. Look at Him in the whirlwind. And see who's really in charge. See who really has the power and the authority and the victory. Just remind ourselves of that. I will say, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter how much you suffer. Even in the name of God, if you have been not been washed of your sins and added to his kingdom, that suffering is not going to be worth anything. If you suffer for him as a Christian, it will be worth everything. And so, are you willing to put Christ on in baptism tonight? Are you willing to believe that He is the Son of the living God? Repent of all of your sins. Everything that God says, you need to just put away with. Confess that He is the Son of God. And confess that you will be faithful to Him till death. Be baptized into His death to rise in newness of life. If we can help you in any way, if you're subject to the invitation, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.